This morning we're continuing our five-week series looking at how our work matters to God. Whether our work is at home, whether it's as a student, as a parent, as a business owner, as an employee, we all spend a lot of our time and energy devoted to work of some sort. And that work matters to God. Last Sunday, we looked at how through our work, we can serve as a countercultural witness, maybe in a situation where we can't change the culture that we work in, but we can be a countercultural witness just by ourselves or with a few other people. And um, we can wisely, tactfully, boldly model a different way to live, to give people a taste of what Jesus and, and the kingdom of God looks like. Well, this morning, we look at our work from a different angle. We look at how, through our work, we can, in some cases, shape and even transform the culture. We know as human beings that that creating and shaping culture is one of the most basic purposes we have. If you go all the way back to Genesis 1, where God created humankind in God's own image, what does it mean to be created in God's image? What does it mean to live out that image? Well, in Genesis 1, God tells humanity to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, and um, then also to subdue the earth, to take raw materials, to take the chaos that's wild and unruly and to bring, it, uh, to bring order and meaning to it. And this word subdue doesn't mean oppress. It, it means rather to tame, to, to shape, to bring order, to be good stewards of, of God's creation, shaping wild wilderness into habitable environments. And, and that's what cultures have always done through, through architecture, through technology, through agriculture, transportation, communication. They have carved out and shaped human and habitable spaces as they've been stewards of God's creation But what too often happens in in humanity's greed and arrogance as we go about that calling is that we create cultures which become oppressive, either to people or to God's creation or to both. And, And this month, we're looking at the story of Daniel, where we see several Jewish young men who have been taken captive into the midst of a very oppressive culture. They've been taken away from their homelands in Judea, where they grew up, and they've been taken captive to Babylon, by Babylon. And as often happens with a successful empire like Babylon, which is on the rise, growing in power, growing in economic success, the empire begins to become all-important. Its success becomes self-justifying. Whatever the empire does must be for the best if it's for the best of the empire. Let me put it in a more modern way. Whatever the market dictates must be for the best if it's good for the market, if it benefits the economy. Well, this is the culture, the mentality that Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, find themselves immersed in. And in today's story, it's the three friends who play a big role. We don't know where Daniel was at the time. Maybe he was out of town. This is a famous story, right? I think it's in just about every children's book of Bible stories. Uh, and like a lot of childhood favorite Bible stories, you, you think you know the story if you learned it as a child. But when you go back and you read it as an adult, you realize there's a lot more going on here than you recognized when you were young. 
This story begins with Nebuchadnezzar, the, the king of Babylon, and probably the most successful military commander and empire builder the world had known to that time. And Nebuchadnezzar has just had a dream in chapter 2. Uh, we skip chapter 2. But he's had a dream about a huge statue representing the great empires of the earth, which were to come on the scene in, in succeeding centuries. And Nebuchadnezzar, in the dream, was the golden head of the statue. And now, seemingly in response to this dream, Nebuchadnezzar makes a statue of his own, a huge golden statue, probably to honor his success and his power. Maybe he was kind of pumped up by that dream. Now, what we have to remember, as I mentioned last week, I think, is that before modern times, there was no separation of church and state. Politics and religion were almost always mixed. Political rulers looked on religion as a way of strengthening and stabilizing their power. In the worldview and the understanding of those times, the the kings ruled on behalf of the gods, and, and they relied on the gods for success. And so they honored the gods and they served the gods. That's why, as we saw last week, and we'll see again uh, in the coming weeks, the king had this whole retinue of astrologers and diviners and, and magicians and, uh, who, who helped the king form policy and make decisions and secure the, the future of the, of the uh, empire. And Daniel and his friends are part of that administration, that retinue. And so for the kings, if, if, they, if, if their empire grew and they defeated the other peoples around them, in their mindset, it was because their own gods were more powerful than the gods of those that they defeated. And, and so for people to honor the empire's gods was to honor the empire. And so it's not surprising that when Nebuchadnezzar sets up this statue, he expects everyone to bow down and worship it. We're not sure what the statue is in an image of. The text doesn't tell us. It might be an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself. It might be one of the chief gods of Babylon, Bel or, or Nebo, um, Marduk, um, who was viewed as, as giving Nebuchadnezzar his success. Whatever this was an image of, worshiping this statue is both, it's about both religion and politics. It's about acknowledging Babylon's supremacy. It's about giving allegiance to the empire of Babylon, which had conquered much of the known world of that day. Worshiping this statue was about making Babylon the thing that was ultimate, the highest priority and authority. And everyone does it. All the conquered peoples who are part of this empire, people of every nation and language, everyone bows down. What awesome power, what amazing size the Babylonian Empire has, like nothing the world has seen to that time. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar makes it clear that his subjects have no choice but to bow down. Bow down or you'll get thrown into the fiery furnace in the corner there, right? But probably, many people happily bowed down. After all, they're polytheists, they can worship many gods, and everyone's a part of Babylon now. Babylon is in control. Babylon is great. Babylon has defeated all the other nations, and in the thinking of that day, Babylon's defeated all the gods. Babylon's gods have defeated all the gods of those other nations. And notice who in particular Nebuchadnezzar requires to bow down before the statue. It's not the common people, it's not the oppressed people who might not think Babylon is so great, but 
Verse 2, rather, it's the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials. These are the elite. These are the people of influence that, that represent all different parts of this empire Nebuchadnezzar has brought together. People who, these are the people who stand to benefit the most from the success of the empire and who have the most authority to make it happen. In modern times, these are the politicians, the bureaucrats, the media elites, the corporate leaders, the academic and industry experts, all the people of influence who keep the system going. Nebuchadnezzar feels that if Babylon is to thrive as an empire, if the system is to work, he needs everyone to be unified, everyone to be working for a greater purpose than themselves. And so if you want a role in the empire, if you want a piece of the pie... A good job, a position of influence and affluence, you need to give your allegiance to the system. If you want a livelihood, if you want career prospects, you've got to bow down. Now, this is not that much different than today, at least in some ways and in some cases. Granted, some systems tolerate more dissent and more nonconformity than others. But very often, if you want to get ahead, you've got to play by the rules. And you've got to go along with what the system values. And you don't get to set the rules or the values in many cases. They're set by the system and you break them at your own peril. So how will our heroes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, respond to the situation? They're a part of the elite. As we saw last Sunday, God has allowed them to prosper and to excel in Babylon. God has protected them. God has raised them up to positions of influence. If they buck the system now, all that prosperity, all that influence that they could have for God will be lost, it would seem. Well, these three men do not bow down. They do not give their ultimate allegiance to the system. But they don't make a big deal about it. No, they quietly go about it, either because they're timid or maybe because they're wise, but they feel there's no need to draw attention to ourselves. They just quietly go about their business. Yet, as often happens in politics, they have some rivals who are keeping an eye on them, some colleagues who we find out are jealous of them, verse 12. These colleagues say to Nebuchadnezzar, there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. And so these jealous rivals make it a point to rat out these three Jews, to notice what they're up to and to call them out to the king. And, and they, these rivals paint the, the failure of these three men to bow down in the worst possible terms. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. The rivals, they, they, they spin this as, as bald-faced insubordination and rebellion, right? And in a way, it, it is. The, the three Jews are saying, in effect, we worship the true and ultimate God. And so the system can never be what's ultimate. It can never be ultimately self-justifying. It, it, it can't ever be the supreme good that trumps all else. Well, Nebuchadnezzar can't believe it. After all, as far as he's concerned, he's already defeated the Jews and their gods. These Jews are in exile, aren't they? 
their God didn't save them from his power. That's why they're in Babylon under his authority. So they need to get with the program. And if they won't worship his gods, if they won't bow down to his authority, then they're traitors and they're untrustworthy and they're seditious. Well, how do uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond? They say, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. We're not bowing down. And our God can deliver us, but even if God chooses not to, we're not bowing down. Talk about boldness, right? (laughs) To say we'd rather die than to admit that the system is ultimate. To say, um, well, well, this is like saying, if you think about it, it's like saying that the emperor has no clothes. (laughs) It's a powerful act against the empire. It's saying that the empire has no power over us. It's not as great and self-important as it thinks. It can't make us think or act like it's all important. We're free to think for ourselves. We're free to choose for ourselves who deserves our worship. And we'd rather die than go along. And your majesty, we worship a God who can save us from your power. A God who's more powerful. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is just furious. Now he's gotten totally ego involved. How dare anyone question his authority, his greatness, and the ultimate importance of the system that he presides over. And so these three men are cast into the furnace at his command. And of course, um, this doesn't always happen, but in this case, God rescues them. God miraculously protects them from harm. And Nebuchadnezzar is absolutely astounded And from his worldview, he gets it. He knows what's going on here. He understands power. He figures, if I'm so all-powerful that no God can rescue anyone from my hand, but these three men worship their God no matter what, and their God shows up and does the impossible and rescues them, then their God is not a God to be messed with. (laughs) And so in response, Nebuchadnezzar makes a new decree. Verse 29 Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Nebuchadnezzar didn't do things halfway. (laughs) No other God can save in this way. Well, there's so much more we could say about this story, but let me just close with this one point. As a result of of these three young men's stand and what happens in the fiery furnace, the culture of the empire changes. The culture of the empire changes. Religious freedom is established, at least for the Jews. The system becomes more tolerant, more humane, more accepting. It admits that it's not all-powerful or all-important. Because these three men are faithful in their work, in the government, and because they, of the stand they take, and because of their courage to, to call out when the emperor has no clothes, the culture changes. And that's part of why our work matters to God. It's part of what our work is to be about, shaping and transforming culture. When cultures become oppressive, when they become arrogant, we are to make them more humane. And and notice two very important ways we can go about transforming culture. One way is the way that Christians today are enamored with. The other way 
less popular second way, but a way which we find nevertheless again and again in the Bible. I'll explain the second way in just a minute. The first way, our preferred way, um, our preferred strategy today is to use power and influence to get people elected to public office, to get them into positions of responsibility and authority, to get them on TV, into Hollywood, social media, to start great schools which educate the next generation of world changers. And all of these can be good things to do. We see Daniel and his friends in chapters 1 and 2. God has placed them among the elite and they work smartly, wisely, winsomely, using their talents, using their smarts, using the influence they have to bring changes to the culture. And we should do the same in our schools, in our workplaces, in the broader culture. But there's a second way that we also see God's people shaping culture and transforming culture in the Bible. And that's through suffering, through losing, through risking even through dying. That's what the cross is all about. The the ultimate paradigm and pinnacle of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And and here, too, in, in today's story, we see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have to go through the fiery furnace to impact the culture. They have to be willing to lay down their very lives and to give up everything. And when we take a stand and we put our lives, our careers, our reputations on the line like that, sometimes God miraculously rescues us like God did for these three. Other times, God does not choose to rescue us. Look at Jesus on the cross. Look at most of his apostles who were martyred for their faiths along the way. But either way, whether God rescues us or not, as the three friends say, it's, it's part of our call as worshipers of God, as followers of Jesus, to be faithful even to the point of loss, the point of danger, the point of death. Jesus said that we're to be the salt of the earth, right? To, to be rubbed into the meat of our culture, to, to give it flavor, to give it seasoning, to keep it from rotting, to preserve it. And often salt gets used up in the process. So there's more than one way to transform, to shape the culture. Through power, also through weakness. Through gaining influence, also through loss. Either way, shaping the culture is another reason that our work matters to God. 